Welcome to the podcast of the fabulous Las Vegas Rotary Club. My name is Jacqueline Thornhill, and I am honored to serve as the 97th president. Our club focuses on youth, children's literacy, and we support our active duty military and veterans. We meet on Thursdays at Lowry's at noon. For more information, please visit LasVegasRotary.com or follow us on Facebook at Las Vegas Rotary Club founded 1923, where you can watch a live stream of our weekly meetings. Please enjoy this week's speaker. Thank you, Jacqueline. Okay, we were very honored to have Mark Hall Patton here today. Uh, he's a museum administrator for Clark County. He covers quite a few museums. Uh, the, the Howard W. Cannon Aviation Museum, Searchlights History Museum, and prior to that, Mark was director of the San Luis Obispo County Historical Museum in California. So he has been quite a, around quite a bit. And, you know, I have to admit, I feel a little guilty because Howard and I have sat here in Jacqueline and I've listened to him for the past hour and a half. And he is absolutely amazing with his history. One of his comments to me was that his children growing up said, uh, uh, he said, why, kids, why don't you read? And they said, we don't read, Dad, because we have you. <laughs> he also is married to Dr. Colleen Hall Patton, professor of sociology and women's studies at UNLV, and they are parents of Joseph and Ellen Hall Patton. And Joseph is on, after his PhD, after serving in the Army um, in Afghanistan, and he is working with a PhD in history. Who knew, right? So uh, it, uh, without any further ado, and I want to take up any more of his time, uh, Mr. Mark Hall Patton. All righty. I figured I'd put my hat on in case you didn't know who I was. And uh, I'm afraid sometimes that I'm just going to fade into the background. Um, uh, just a, a quick resume of my, my background. I have been in the museum field for 43 years. Um, got started um, in Southern California, did my BA at UCI, uh, thanks to the Kiwanis Club over there. I got a grant or a scholarship for four years, $800 a year. I think it was the only time that Kiwanis Club ever gave a scholarship to an historian. Um, I think I got the scholarship because I had the shortest hair of any of the applicants. <laughs> but I want to tell you that in 1972, when I got that scholarship, $800 paid my yearly tuition at UCI. That was pretty good. That got me through UCI, got me my BA. So, Kiwanians, thank you. Just want to say that. And in case you wonder what happens when you give scholarships like that, you never know. Sometimes it comes back to bite you. you know. So, anyways, I got my BA, then I went off to the University of Delaware to go into museology. There's a word for you. Anybody hear that word before? Museology. That's the science of running museums. There, you see, I'm all about education. <laughs> Trying to help you out. 
and went into museum work. Now, one of the things I didn't know was the University of Delaware, by the way, I went from being an anteater to being a fighting blue hen. Kind of went sideways on that one. The, the University of Delaware was the most expensive state university in the United States, so I never finished up my master's. I never want anybody to think that I did. I went, I finished up all my, my graduate classes in museum work, in museology, and then I went to work. And ever since then, I've been working in museums and running museums. I worked at the Bowers Museum, I ran the Orange Historical Society, I founded the Anaheim Museum, I did the first exhibit on the history of women in Los Angeles, I uh, worked at the museums in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Um, you were saying from Hawaii that uh, you didn't have anything warm. When I was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, it got down to minus 35 degrees there. I had plenty that was warm, I'll tell you. I ran the museums in San Luis Obispo, and then I came here, and for that, I want to thank the Rotarians here, because I came here, absolutely, you guys gave some grants to a new museum to get started that, was the Howard w., that became the Howard W. Cannon Aviation Museum. That's the museum that I came over here to create in 1993. Now, can I see a show of hands? How many of you have been to the Howard W. Cannon Aviation Museum? Okay, let me make this easier. I've, I'm, that's a good showing. How many of you have been to McCarran Airport? Okay, then you've all been to the Howard W. Cannon Aviation Museum. All those history exhibits in the airport, those are mine. That's what we did. Also, all the history exhibits in the Henderson Executive Airport, also the ones in North Las Vegas Airport. Those are the ones that we did. The Howard W. Cannon Aviation Museum is the most visited, least known museum in the state of Nevada. But it was the first time I was able to take a museum out of a standard museum location and have it in a place where people were. And it is a wonderful thing. Every time that, that the airport, and it's the airport that funds that, by the way. That is funded by the Department of Aviation. So it's something that allows people who are going through the airport to learn something about us. You know, it's not that Bugsy Siegel showed up in the middle of the desert and said, let there be flamingo, and everything grew up out of the sand. You know, they, there's actually some other people that got involved here. But in 2007, my colleague who ran the Clark County Museum retired. And when he retired, well, the county decided, you know, you're doing really well with a full-time job. And they said, you know, I think we'll give you another full-time job. But don't worry, we won't give you any more money. So, they, because they, they were worried about my taxes, I think. They were, they were being nice to me. So they gave me the Clark County Museum and the Searchlight Museum. So in 2007, I started running all the county's museums. Now, again, by hands, show me how many of you have been to the Clark County Museum. Very good. That I like to see. 
Now, this is one I don't expect a lot of hands on. How many of you have been to the Searchlight History Museum? Oh, that's not bad. Okay. Searchlight History Museum is in the community center in Searchlight. Searchlight's kind of an interesting place. We opened that one in 1990, by the way. Searchlight is a little community. You all know Searchlight. But Searchlight's an interesting little town. Scott Joplin wrote a rag for Searchlight. He never went there, but he had a friend who had a mind there. So he wrote a rag for the place. Uh, Edith Head, you all heard of Edith Head? She spent a couple of years of her young life living in Searchlight. Edith Head. The first man to fly nonstop across the United States, John McCready, grew up in Searchlight. He was also the first man to take an open cockpit biplane to over 40,000 feet. Now think about that. His eyes froze open. He was also the first man to make a night, nighttime after dark parachute jump. For those three flights, he run, won the McKay Trophy. This was a trophy that was given for the most important flight in a single year. The only man to win it three times. Grew up in searchlight. Bill Nellis for whom Nellis Air Force Base was named, grew up in Searchlight. And there was some senator a few years ago that, was, that grew up down there as well. I don't, I don't know, Harry somebody or another. He, was, he grew up down there as well. But it's an interesting little town. We've got a museum down there. And then I've got an outreach exhibit in the Moapa Valley. So that's what I do. I run all of those. And I do that, by the way, with a staff of four full-time people. So in case the, the, you think that your taxes are being overspent on the county museum system? No, they're not. But in 2009, life changed a little bit. 2009, it was the county centennial, and the county decided that they were going to do a live television show. Well, I was working on just about everything with the county centennial. Dorothy Wright, another person in Parks and Rec, and I, ended up doing most of what was happening with the County Centennial. And we were going to do a live television show, and the, the county was trying to get some name person to be the, the person that, that ran, you know, was, was the host for the show. And we were about a week out from the first episode, and uh, they couldn't get anybody. And so Dorothy finally said, well, Mark's done this kind of thing with, with you know, panels out at the museum. Why don't we use him? And so uh, Eric Papa, who's the county PIO, said, okay, Mark, you can do it. And I said, okay. I didn't realize this was going to be live. If you are ever offered a live television show that is an hour and a half long, say no. Do not ever take that on. It is aggravating. But okay, I'm a county employee. As a county employee, the county can say, by the way, under other duties as assigned, you're now the host of a live television show. Okay, fine. 
First one goes on, I survive it. A couple of weeks later, this is February of 2009, I'm sitting at my desk at the museum, and I get a phone call. This is a production firm out of New York. And they say, can you look at a West Point uniform coat for us and tell us whether it's real? I said, yeah, I can do that. I've looked at lots of uniforms over the years. They said, can you do it on camera? Doing live television, of course I can. They say, can you tell us what it's worth? I said, no. That's not what we do in museums. We don't buy and sell this stuff. If I sell you something out of the museum, I go to jail. And if you give something to the museum, and by the way, this is for everybody's knowledge, if you give something to a nonprofit organization and they tell you what it's worth, they're breaking the law. If you give something to the museum, I cannot, by law, tell you what it's worth. It's an IRS regulation. So I said, no, I can't do that and I don't care. And so then they started telling me about this new reality show that they're going to film here in Vegas. And it's going to be people coming into a pawn shop. What? Who's going to go to a pawn shop or watch a show about people going to a pawn shop? Are you kidding me? What a stupid idea. And I'm going... And then they say, well, it's going to be on the History Channel. Well, okay, well, that's kind of cool, but a pawn shop? Are you nuts? But I said, okay, fine, yeah, I'll, you know. But I'm not going to tell you what anything's worth. And they said, well, we'll try you anyways. Fine, try away. I don't care. You know, I just thought this was dumb. So they came out. They set up a time. They told me what it was going to be. So, you know, I looked it up, looked up who the guy was. He was the only lieutenant general that, that was, was a native Nevadan that served in World War II and all of that so I could talk about him and, and that. And they came out and they filmed at the museum at my desk. It took them a half an hour, by the way, to empty my desk and make it look like it was clear. None of you have seen my office. You'd understand that if you did. Um, so they came out to the museum and they filmed, and once they got done filming, I turned to the director and I said, now tell me again what this is supposed to be, because I was, I was going, I don't get this. And he told me again the whole idea of this show, and I said, okay, fine, call me if you need me. And this was, you know, this was February. The show didn't go on the air until July of 2009, so nothing had hit the air. This was one of the pilots. The History Channel had only bought six pilots. So nobody knew what this was going to be. Nobody knew whether it was going to be something people wanted to watch. And you know, in July of 2009, this thing hit the air, and it exploded. It, was, it, it hit so big, nobody had any idea of this. Within, by the second week... The History Channel had bought 20 more episodes. By the third week, they'd bought another 40 on top of that. You know, it was just all of a sudden, I'm getting phone calls and saying, can you look at this thing? Can you look at this thing? And so I'm going, okay, fine, I, I can do that. And within, you know, by, 
what, October of 09, my wife and I were over in California. Now, we had no idea what this was going to do to us. And we were over in California. We, we, my mom was still alive, so we were overseeing her. And we were getting ready to come home. We were stopped at, uh, if, if any of you know Orange, California, there's uh, an Arco station uh, there on Tustin Avenue, right at Chapman. We're at that, or- at that Arco station. Just filled up the, the car. Colleen was already in the car. I'm getting ready to step in. And this guy comes barreling across the, the, the parking lot there. And he runs up to me and he says, I saw the hat. I saw the beard. I saw the license. You're the guy from Pawn Stars. And I said, yes, I am. And he said, I hate you. Now, I've been running museums at that time for over 30 years. Nobody's ever told me they hated me in an Arco station before. So I said, why? And he said, why don't you ever give them a price? I said, because I don't sell this stuff. I run museums. And he said, oh, okay. And he walked off. (laughs) And Colleen looks at me and says, I'm going to start taking notes. She's a sociologist. She has since published papers about the process of becoming a celebrity because it has completely changed our lives. We cannot go anywhere in the world without being stopped. And you'll have heard some of these stories. Um, Because the show is on now in 150 countries. It is translated into 38 languages. When Colleen and I went to Ireland five years ago, we got off the plane. We'd done a red eye over there. Now understand something. I do not get paid to be on the show. I am a county employee. The county really frowns. I don't understand why. They're very narrow-minded. But they really frown on me taking a second paycheck while they're paying me. So I don't get to be paid for it. So I'm only paid by the county. So, you know, I don't get anything for being on the show. You know, and I don't get any residuals or any of that sort of thing. You know, but anyways, we flew on over there, got off the plane, walked up to passport control, and the guy in the window looks at me and says, Hello, Mark. Now, I'm still holding on to my passport. And I said, uh... He said, oh, the show's on over here. We watch it all the time. Okay, that's cool. Now, I will tell you that I could not buy a drink in a pub anywhere in Ireland. (laughs) Yeah, that was okay. (laughs) I'd walk in and there'd be somebody saying, Oi, are you that guy? Yes, I am. What are you drinking? Guinness. What are your wife drinking? Smithics. Okay, that's good. But of course, when we were in Dublin, we were walking back from, I think, the, the Dublin Castle or something. We were walking down some little side street. And this guy was sleeping in his lorry in his truck. And he woke up and he saw us. And, and it, you know, this is just a side street. We're the only two people on this little street. And, and he woke up and he looked at me and he jumped out of the cab of his truck. He said, 
oh my God, it is you. Me buddy said he saw you yesterday and I told him he was a liar, but you are here. <laughs> I thought, we're on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. We're walking down a side street in Dublin and people have been talking about us at gatherings, you know, just because we happen to be there. It is the power of television. It is amazing. You know, it has gotten to the point now, after 10 years, as big as the show is, I mean, literally the show has more viewership in India, the Philippines, Malaysia, Brazil, places like that, than it does in the United States. You know, we're the number one show in many countries. It's an amazing thought when you look at a show like this and you realize that this is what it's saying about Las Vegas. One of the things that's really kind of interesting is it's saying that Las Vegas has more than the Strip. It's saying that there are all these experts here, that there is knowledge here, that there is history here. You know. One of the things that I like about it is that kids watch it. Kids down to age four stop me and talk to me. I like it. You know, they, they drag their parents out to the county museum because they've seen me on television. Of course, if they've seen me on television in Guatemala, they think I should be able to speak Spanish because that's all they've heard me talk and speak. <laughs> you know, it's, it is amazing how often people believe that you are what they see on television. A few years ago when Brian Sandoval was still our governor, I was at an event and I saw that he was there. I was going to go over and introduce myself because I run the county museum system. And I was finishing up talking to a friend of mine who ran one of the other museums here. And I finished up talking to him. I turned around and Brian was standing right in front of me. And he said, hello, I'm Brian Sandoval. And I just wanted to say hello because you're in my living room every week. <laughs> and I said, don't worry, I'm not looking. <laughs> you don't know who all is watching. Now, sometimes that's good. You know, if the governor is, that's all right. Sometimes that's not so good. I did one episode where a lady brought in a bomber jacket from World War II. And then as we started filming, it turned out that she had a whole lot more paperwork from her father whose bomber jacket it was. And they said, do you mind if we film this, if we start over again tomorrow, because we'd like to have the paperwork in, in the shot. As, and then I checked my calendar because they have to schedule it around my calendar and around Rick's and everybody else's and said, okay, fine. You know, that's the part of the show that isn't real. We schedule everybody being there. And so we said, okay, fine. Yes, we can do this. So everybody came in the next day and this lady had her sister with her. So, you know, the reality is when Rick says, I'm going to call my buddy, I'm standing behind the, can the, the camera. I'm already there. Because it takes four hours out of my day to film one of those segments. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a half an hour just to drive down there and a half an hour back. Um, so anyways, I'm standing back there and I'm talking to the lady's sister. And she says, you know, I talked to my son last night. I said, okay. And said, he's in the, the state penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington. I'm thinking I wouldn't have shared that with a stranger, but okay, thank you. Um, said, no, no, it was just an advertising problem. <laughs> I didn't ask any more at that point. And she, she said, no, but I just wanted to tell you that um, I told him that his aunt was bringing his grandfather's um, flight jacket in on Pawn Stars. And he said, oh, that's cool. We all love Pawn Stars here at the penitentiary. Cool. And he said, no, what is she taking in? And she told him again. And he said, oh, that's neat. That means they're going to call in Mark. We all love Mark. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I had never really thought about going to college to be the favored expert of the male inmate population <laughs> of the state penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington. But the same thing happened when I stopped at for lunch with a friend of mine who's a captain in the fire department here, and we both happened to be badge collectors, law enforcement fire badge collectors. And we were over at a show in California, and we were coming back, and he knew a, a nice place to go for lunch. And so we stopped there, and there were a bunch of guys standing around with green vests on, green rockers and that, and they all said Vagos. Yes, Vagos, yes, the outlaw biker gang, Vagos. And I said, uh, do you think we ought to go in there? And he said, oh, yeah, it's okay, you know, we, we can go in there. Okay. So we go walking in, and I hear my friend Steve laughing behind me as we're walking through. And I don't know what he's laughing at, but I'm just looking around for an open table. There's nothing inside, but there's... there's Vagos standing at the doorways, you know, kind of guards. And I'm kind of going, this is weird, but okay, there's, you know, an open table and there are other civilians there, so I guess it's okay. And we stop there and, and, every, and after we're there for a while, some of the Vagos are sending their, their ladies over to talk to us and some of the Vagos are talking to us. And before we're able to leave, I ended up having to take a picture with the president of the Vagos. <laughs> because apparently, I'm very popular with the Vagos. Who knew? You know, I never knew that outlaw biker gangs watched Pawn Stars. You know, you, you just never know. It's, it's one of those things that, as a museum director... You know, you don't know where your outreach is going to get to. But if you wonder what this has done for the museum, our attendance after 2008, with the economic downturn, I had to close down. I lost half of my staff and half of my budget. This happened throughout the county. It was not just me. So I had to shut down a couple of major events that we had every year, our our ghosts and goblins, our 
Native American festival, things like that. I just did not have the money. I just didn't have the people. So my annual attendance went from about oh, 40,000 a year down to close to about 23,000 a year. So it, it, it's a major hit. Since being on the show, it's gone back up to about 45,000 a year, and it's spread evenly throughout the year. Now, it is just that kind of a draw. It brings people in. Of course, what it means is that I have to have a life-size cutout of me in the lobby because if I'm not there, if I happen to be speaking to an August group like yourselves, I'm not there to take pictures with people that come in from everywhere. I know, for example, that there's a family from New Zealand coming in this afternoon to see me because they emailed me to let me know that they were coming. Most people don't. They just show up. You know, but they want to come to the museum. You know, it has brought people into the museum. They are aware of us. The advertising power of that show is worth more than anything the county could have put into my budget. And the interesting thing is that I still have to do my job. Now you might think, oh, well, he's doing four hours going down there and doing one of these episodes. No, I still have to go back to the museum and do my job. If I have to stay late to do my job, I still have to do my job. But I don't care because I have run museums all my life. This is what I do. And it's all about getting people in. It's all about educating people, letting them know about our history. We've got a fascinating history here. Yeah, I see Jim back there. I know he knows it. <laughs> Four minutes. Okay, I'll be telling. I'm, I'm watching. I, I, you know, I was told that I've got a very distinct time period, and I told everybody up here at the head table that I've been married 41 years, so I follow directions well. So when I'm told to shut up, I will sit back down. Don't worry, everybody. But the fact is, we do have a fascinating history, and we need to get that word out, because so many people come into Southern Nevada and have no idea of our history. They really think that everything is based on the Strip, and everything has always been based there, and it has not. That's not where we came from. When people talk about why, it, why do we have 2.3 million people in the middle of the desert, I always tell people there's one word that defines why we are here, and that word is water. But it is not the lake, and it is not the river. It is the water that was in the ground here. That's what brought the old Spanish trail, which was neither old nor Spanish. John Charles Fremont didn't know what he was talking about when he called it that, but that's all right. Um, you know, that's not what brought him here. It was that we had the highest aquifer of any valley in the area for about 100 miles. You know, you couldn't make your way all the way down to the river and bring the water back up here. 
But we have a really fascinating history, and that we need to get out. And I'm now going to shut up. Thank you very much for letting me speak. I do appreciate it. Hang on one second, Mark. I'd like to present you with our Share What You Can Award, which means we're going to give a donation to the local USO in your name. Well, thank you very much. All right. Now I'm going to turn over the program to Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil. Okay, uh, Dr. Phil would like to thank everyone for coming today. And just remember us, uh, remember us in, in your prayers um, that, that those, of, those uh, Kiwanians and Rotarians that were here in this past year, they have gone, passed, left on very good terms, we hope, with the Lord. And, and that we keep everybody in, uh, in good health this coming year. And we'll look forward to the 66th Kiwanian and Rotarian meeting next year. So thank you very much for coming. Major Randy, why don't you come on up and say All right. Every year I look forward to this. It's uh, always exciting. Oh, boy. Looks like I, I dropped about uh, 5,000 cans on the floor there. <laughs> hey. There's more of it. I wanted to say that the Salvation Army... Yeah, hold on to it for me. I wanted to say that the Salvation Army here in southern Nevada, has several locations where we do food service. And, of course, at uh, Christmas time, we, we do the most. And that, uh, here in southern Nevada, includes not just Las Vegas, but it also includes uh, Mesquite and Pahrump, as well as Henderson. And today, I just wanted to introduce the officers from the Henderson United Corps. Are you still? Yes, yeah, so they are. If you could, Lieutenant, stand up. Um, this is Lieutenant um, Yoon, and she is uh, just recently from the Korean Corps in Las Vegas, and we, we united, we didn't say reunited, we united the Henderson Corps with the Korean Corps, and we now call it the Henderson United Corps. And we have a food warehouse down there, and we do food service in Henderson, uh, just like we do in Las Vegas. And then we also have our Owens campus. So I just want you to know that the food that we purchase with the funds and the canned foods that are collected are deeply needed, and we will make sure that we do the most good with those donations. Now, let's see here. Is it still all there? I, I'll do, I got it now. I figured it out. All right. So we count cans and we convert dollars into cans, and the going exchange rate is nine cents a can wholesale. So you can do the math if you want, but I'm going to give it to you in cans. So first of all, the Kiwanis Clubs here in Las Vegas have joined together, and they have donated the equivalent of 76,278 cans. That is wonderful. Now, we have a trophy that we actually have had to get a new one this year because the space to fill in all of the yearly name of Rotary or Kiwanis is full. And so whoever wins, I will personally present that to your club. 
But as I look at these numbers, uh, uh, I see that the Rotary Club equivalent between canned goods collected and cash uh, donations are 106,091 cans. So I would say, based on the last uh, few years that I've been here, that the Kiwanis Clubs are catching up. That's, that's what I would say. But they are the first name on the trophy that when we started this competition, uh, no, I won't forget. <laughs> uh, I myself have been a, a Kiwanian and, and a Rotarian, and I can say that I am proud to have served in both organizations. So God bless you, and thank you for your generosity. In the words of a woman I most admire, Amelia Earhart, no kind action ever stops with itself. One kind action leads to another. Let's leave today building connections, taking kind action, serving one another, and rejoicing in the fellowship of Rotary. And a very happy Thanksgiving to all of you. And Mark said he would stay behind for a few minutes if you wanted to speak with him. Meeting adjourned. We hope you enjoyed the latest podcast from the Las Vegas Rotary Club. For more information about future meetings, membership, and our local service projects, please visit lasvegasrotary.com. Now please go out, take action, and connect the world. <laughs>